You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. What would you say are some of the most desperate prayers you've ever prayed? The most desperate prayers you've ever prayed. For some of you, you are answering that question in your mind with very recent events. Some of you may be going through severe crises right now, maybe personally or in your family, maybe a sickness or a dying loved one or a financial hardship or relationship in your family that's being torn apart and, and your heart aches. For some of you, it might be a more distant memory, but you can recall, you can recall those desperate prayers when it's, if it were so dominating, that, that concern in your heart was so dominant that it's like you pushed back everything else from your mind, everything else off of your heart, and with that issue on your heart in such a focused, singular way, it's as if you stormed into the throne room of God and began to plead your case. Lord, have mercy. Please, Lord, have mercy. Do do you remember desperate prayers like that? We're going to meet a man today who knew that experience. A desperate dad. Join me in your copy of the Bible, please. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and today we're going to look at verses 43 through 54. John the Gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. Last Sunday, Pastor Nate served us well by leading us through that story found in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, of Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. Thank you, Pastor Nate, for uh, leading us through that passage. And I was here last Sunday, and I recognize the fact that many of you were not. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and a lot of you were gone. Anytime you miss a Sunday here at CCC, you can get on the church's website and download sermons for free. So I'd encourage you to get caught up with the rest of us and listen to Pastor Nate's sermon last Sunday about Jesus and the woman of the well at Sychar. Verse 43 of John 4 says, After the two days he departed for Galilee. Now, especially since a lot of us were gone last week, let me do this with us. Let me back up one paragraph. Let me back up to chapter 4, verse 39, and read that paragraph so we can kind of get a running start into our passage today. Follow along in your copy, chapter 4, verse 39, the Word of God says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee. Okay, a real brief geography lesson. Some of you are excited, some of you aren't. Let's look at a map, see what's going on. <coughs> Most of the Jews in Jesus' day, most of the Jews in Jesus' day lived either down here in Judea, 
where there's Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Jericho, some of these well-known towns, or they lived up north in Galilee. Uh, that's where Jesus spent most of his years growing up, in, uh, here, right here in Nazareth. Today we're going to see Cana, we're going to hear about Capernaum. <coughs> in between is this region called Samaria. And as Pastor Nate explained last Sunday, most of the folks who lived in Samaria were people of mixed race. And the people of uh, the Jews did not necessarily appreciate them. In, in fact, they tended to avoid them whenever possible. And if Jews down here in the south wanted to visit up north or vice versa, a common thing was for them to go down to the river, the Jordan River, follow the river up, and then go back in to whichever direction they were going, completely bypassing Samaria. If they could avoid Samaria, they would. But as we learned last week, it said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through? He was on a divine appointment. And when they stopped for lunch here at this little village called Sychar, that's where he met this woman at the well. And as he began to talk to this woman, the Lord began his miracle of grace in her life, didn't he? And she went back into the village, probably a half mile or so from the well, and began to tell people, you've got to come meet this guy. I wonder if he's the Messiah. And you can see this whole flock of people coming out of the village to Sychar to meet Jesus. And, and for two days, he stayed with them. Now, I have to put myself in his, his disciple's sandals for a few minutes and and wonder how much of that time did they just sit there with their mouths hanging open with no words coming out. I mean, the Jews avoided Samaritans, and here Jesus is spending two days with these people. He's spending two days explaining who he is, how to be right with God through him. And many Samaritans came to faith in Jesus Christ during those two days because they saw that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. Fascinating story. But after these two very fruitful days there in Sychar, it says that Jesus departed for Galilee. He headed up north to his home area. Look at verse 44. Does this raise questions in your mind? It says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. For. It begins with the word for. Because. So, okay, that seems counterintuitive. It says that Jesus is going to leave this place of great fruitfulness, uh, the, the Samaritan village of Sychar, <coughs> and he's going to go up into his home area, Galilee, because, for, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, I don't know you personally, some of you, some I know fairly well, but I think most of us would be, be drawn toward honor. We'd be drawn toward honor. I want to go someplace where people appreciate me. I want to go someplace where people, you know, thank me for coming, where I feel warm and welcomed. Uh, I don't deliberately go places where people will not like me, where I, where I will not be honored. But here in this verse, John says, Jesus went up north, he went up to Galilee, because, for, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, now what's going on here? Why would he do that? Well, this is not a new concept for us in the Gospel of John. Some of you remember back in our earliest Sundays in the Gospel of John, in his prologue, in his introduction to his Gospel, John said this in verse 11 of chapter 1, He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. Right at the beginning of John's Gospel, he's going to tell us something about Jesus. Jesus is going to come to his own, he's going to come to his own people, and his own people 
are not going to receive him. But why would Jesus go anyway? I'm not saying I have this all figured out, please. But I was reading something from John Piper. Some of you follow his ministry, listen to his sermons. But John Piper said this. Verse 44 seems strange to us. Go to a place because they will probably misunderstand you and reject you. But it was not strange to Jesus. It was part of the plan from the beginning. He intends to keep offering himself to his own, and overall, his own will not receive him. This will, in the end, get him killed. Which is why he came. And I thought, that's fascinating. We have to see divine purpose behind all of this. There's a divine purpose to what Jesus is doing here. He's going to go back to Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his own country knowing that he will be rejected by his own kin, his own extended relatives, and eventually they will kill him. And the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Wait a minute. I thought, wait a minute, I thought you just said he went to Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his own country. And then the very next sentence, John says, and the Galileans welcomed him. You know, what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, the reason I wanted us to back up a paragraph and to read that section from last week's passage was to notice the contrast. The Samaritans did honor Jesus, didn't they? They honored him in what fashion? They believed him. They believed his word. And they said, we know that you are the savior of the world. And so these mixed race people that were looked down upon by the pure Jews actually honored Jesus as the Messiah. They actually honored him as the Messiah, as the savior, and put their saving faith in him. Many of the people in that village we're going to see in heaven. It gets to Galilee, and it says they welcomed him. But as we're going to see in today's story, it wasn't so much that they welcomed him as the Messiah, that they welcomed him as the Savior of their souls, the forgiver of their sins, but they welcomed him in a more superficial way. That their faith in Jesus Christ was more an excitement over the miracles that he did. That they weren't so much mesmerized with the beauty of Jesus as the Savior as they were mesmerized by the miracles he would do. We've, we've seen this before. You know, John tells us here in chapter 4 that some of these Galileans had been down south in Jerusalem and they'd seen miracles Jesus did down south. They came back home up north and they told their relatives, they told their neighbors about this miracle worker, Jesus. And so now Jesus is coming back to his home area of Galilee, and they, they want to see some miracles too. But back when Jesus was down south in Judea, I'm reading now from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's not the end of the passage. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to tell him to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
And so here are these people seemingly having a positive response to Jesus doing miracles, but Jesus sees their excitement over the miracles, and he holds back. He holds himself back. He does not entrust himself to them because he knows what's in their hearts. He sees that what's in their hearts is not faith in him as the Savior, faith in him as the Messiah. But it's more of an excitement over the fancy things he was doing. It's more excitement over the signs and wonders. Jesus saw that. And he withheld himself from them. And now he's up in Galilee among similar people. And I think we're seeing the same kind of thing. Verse 46 says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water into wine. And this is the beginning of about a 16-month period in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' public ministry, um, when he turned about 30 years old, which was the age someone could become a rabbi, uh, there was about three, three and a half years where Jesus had a public ministry. And about 16 months out of that three years was up here in what's known as the Great Galilean Ministry. It's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke and their Gospels all spend a significant amount of time on those 16 months. We read the Gospel of John, and unless I miss something, I think this may be the only story from those 16 months. So we don't want to miss it. Apparently it's pretty important if he includes it in his Gospel here, right? That's the background now as we come to verses 46 through 54. Picking up partway through verse 46, it says, And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Capernaum, they're on the north side of the lake, Cana, 20 miles or so after, over the Galilean hills to the northwest. And in Capernaum was this official. And the word John uses there has the idea of a royal official, probably some official in the, the court of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, we would probably call him more like a governor, but he was referred to as a king back then. He would have ruled over about a fourth of Palestine, and uh, this guy probably was in his service in some way. He was uh, an official. He might have been a Jew. He might have been a Gentile. We don't know. But he was a man of influence, a man of power, and most likely a man of wealth. But this man was desperate. He had a son, and his son was sick to the point of death. Now, I'm reading between the lines here, but I have to imagine that if this man, this royal official, had money, had influence, had power, that he probably had done everything he could to get his son well. He probably used his influence to compel the best doctors in the region to come and help. He probably used whatever money was necessary to get medical help for his son. And yet, like some of you have experienced, those, dread, those dreaded words from the physician who says, I'm sorry, there's nothing else we can do. There's nothing else we can do. And this desperate dad had apparently heard those, those, those ugly words. I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. Your son's dying. And while this dad's in that heartache, he hears friends and neighbors who've come back from Judea and they're telling stories of this miracle worker, this Jesus who grew up not far away in Nazareth. And he thinks, well, I need a miracle. I need a miracle. 
You know, he, he was a man of influence. He could have sent one of his servants, but he didn't. He could have sent his wife, but he didn't. This dad went himself. And I picture this desperate dad, this desperate royal dad, probably dressed well, heading over those Galilean hills, heading for Canaan. He finds Jesus, and he says, you've got to come. You've got to come down to Capernaum. My son's dying. My son's dying. You have to come. Come. Come down to Capernaum and heal my son. He's at death's door. Now, this man had never had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He was going on second-hand information. Whereas other people had told him about Jesus. You know, maybe some of you are like that. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you here in this room have never had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. You've heard other people talking about Jesus. Maybe your parents, maybe your grandparents, maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe one of your pastors, maybe a friend. And your friends, your family members have spoken of Jesus with such conviction and such passion that it has stirred your curiosity. And even though you have yet to have a personal saving encounter with Jesus Christ, you're going on what other people have said. And, and you said, they, they seem convinced. They seem in love with Jesus Christ. They seem captured by him. And your curiosity's aroused. And there's this spark, this spark of hope in your heart. You know what? I don't believe this official came to Jesus as a saved man. In fact, I don't believe he was saved till later. But this man did the right thing. He did the right thing in coming to Jesus, even though he only had this little flicker of faith. He had this little flicker of faith based on what he'd heard from other people about Jesus, but it was the right thing to do to come to Jesus. I don't, I don't want to dismiss this dad. I don't want to disparage this dad in coming to Jesus, even though he had not yet put faith in Jesus as a Savior. Sometimes God puts people in desperate situations, stirring in them at least a flicker of faith, at least a flicker of hope that Jesus might be the answer to the problem. And when a child is dying, it's the right thing to come to Jesus, the holder of the keys. I was reflecting on this passage this week. My mind was going back to Scripture and it was going back to incidents in our lives. When John was an old man, when John would become an old man, he was allowed to see out there on the island of Patmos the glorified, ascended Jesus Christ. And when he saw his old friend Jesus, now glorified and ascended, the, the sight was so overwhelming that John says, I, I felt, you can read it yourself in Revelation 1. He said, I fell down as though dead. He was so overwhelmed at the glory of the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ that he says, I fell down as though dead. And Jesus, his old friend, came over and put his hand on John and says, John, don't, don't be afraid, John. It's, it's me. I, I, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And, and I hold the keys. I hold the keys of, of death and hell. And whenever you're concerned with a dying loved one, it's, it's right to go to the holder of the keys. And this desperate dad there in Galilee, he was coming to the holders of the keys and saying, Oh, please don't unlock the door. Don't let my son pass through the door of death. Keep it locked, holder of the keys. 
don't often sit at my desk and weep as I prepare sermons, but this was, this was an unusual week. There were lots of tears at my desk because I could not read the story and not relive an encounter that Gladine and I went through 32 years ago. And I realize some of you will relate to this story, and there are even some of you veterans of this church who remember this particular story. But 32 years ago, our daughter lay on a bed in the ICU at Lutheran Hospital, dying. And the doctors gave her a 10% chance of living. This was our baby. This was our youngest. She was a year old. And she lay in that hospital bed, unmoving, high fever, dying. And we sat by her bed, and we poured our hearts out to the holder of the keys. Spare her life, Lord, please. Spare our daughter's life. Ten days later, Laura was dismissed from the hospital. And the unbelieving physician that signed her out looked at me and said, I guess we have a miracle baby here. And I was able to testify to that Jewish physician about the Jewish carpenter, Jesus Christ, the one who can and who does miracles. Even when our faith is small, even when it's flickering, it's right to come to Jesus. And this man did, even with his flicker of faith. Do we want to stay there, though? How did Jesus respond to this man? How did Jesus respond to this man who came to him in such desperation? Look at Jesus' response, verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That catch you off guard? We know Jesus to be compassionate. And this guy just said, please come down to Capernaum, my son's dying. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It helps to recognize the fact that Jesus uses the word you plural. In our proper English, we don't have a you plural, but we have y'all and you guys and yuns. <laughs> he's saying you people. And he's looking at this man, this desperate dad from Capernaum, but he's talking to the crowd that's listening. And there would have been a large crowd listening to all this. I mean, this would have been quite a scene. This royal official falling at the knees of the carpenter turned preacher. Begging him for the life of his son. And Jesus looks at this man, but he's addressing the crowd. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. He's lamenting the fact that these people, by and large, were not putting their faith in him for who he is. The savior of the world, the Messiah. But merely in the signs and wonders he could do. They repeatedly wanted Jesus to prove himself. My friends, I'm going to say something that might sound a bit bold, but Jesus is bold here too, isn't he? People whose faith is dependent upon signs and wonders are always looking for the next miracle to sustain their superficial faith. And if they don't get what they're looking for, they'll often quickly drift away, expressing disappointment, disillusionment with Jesus. 
And even if he does answer their prayer and do some miracle, saving the life of someone they love or fixing their financial problems or healing a broken relationship, once their problem is fixed, it's like they put him back on the shelf until they need him again. And it's not so much that they love Jesus as they use Jesus. And Jesus is looking at this Galilean crowd and saying, you're, you're just sign seekers, you're wonder worshipers, you, you're lovers of my power, not my person. You're not coming to me saying, I have a sin problem, you're coming to me saying, I have a sickness problem, I have a financial problem, I have this kind of problem, please fix it. But you're not coming to me saying, my biggest problem is I need to be right with God and I'm a sinner. Save me, change me, make me yours. They were all caught up in the signs. And they missed the one the signs were pointing to. Let me ask you, what's a sign for? What's the purpose of a sign? Well, let me make up a story. Let's pretend that you and a friend decide to go on a trek, a hike, out in one of these humongous national parks out in the Rocky Mountains. And you get lost. And for two or three days you wander around and you're getting hungry and thirsty and tired and scared and you think you're going to die. And then you come across a sign. And the sign simply says, Ranger Station, and an arrow pointing up the hill. And you say to your friend, look, a sign! And your friend says, yeah, look at that. That lettering is perfect. The color on that sign is just so engaging. There's not a speck of rust on that sign. Now that's a sign. And you'd look at your friend like, you've been out here too long. You've lost your marbles. I mean, what's a sign for? A sign is supposed to point to something. In this case, it would point to safety. Ranger station. Well, Jesus did signs and wonders, and they were good. But the signs and wonders were not an end in and of themselves. Well, they might have had benefits, but they weren't an end in and of themselves. Even with their benefits, the signs and wonders were to point to the one doing them. They were to point to Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. They were to point to Jesus Christ as God come in the flesh. And a lot of these Galileans were mesmerized with the sign. And they missed the one that the sign was pointing to. So Jesus says that to this man and to these people. John would later write in John 20, 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him you may have life in his name. But the Galilean crowd is missing that. So now, how is this desperate dad going to respond to what Jesus just said? Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's not backing off, is he? <laughs> He's sticking to that song. Come down before my child dies. So what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to immediately leave, saying, Well, let's get going then. Let's get down there to Capernaum. No, he doesn't, does he? Look at verse 50. He says, go, your son will live. Now, even though Jesus rebuked or lamented the fact that the faith was so limited, so narrow, even this desperate dad had a very limited faith. He thought Jesus had to physically come down to Capernaum. And apparently he didn't think about the possibility of resurrection from the dead. It, the implication is if you don't come before he dies, there's no hope. 
So his, his faith was narrow, it was limited. But even though this man had just a flicker of faith, you don't see Jesus squelching him. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would not snuff out the smoking wick. Uh, he wouldn't pour water on a very barely glowing ember. Jesus is so patient, isn't he? Isn't he patient with you? Isn't he patient with me? And he was patient with this man. He didn't dismiss his concern, but neither did he answer it the way the guy expected. The guy thought Jesus would come down to Capernaum. The guy says, come, and Jesus says, go. (laughs) And so he told the man, just go home. Your son lives. Your son will live. Now see, Jesus, think about it. Jesus could have gone to Capernaum. Jesus sometimes did that. Um, Was it Jairus who had the sick servant? Jesus went to the house. There were times Jesus would go places. The girl that died, Jesus raised her from the dead. There were times Jesus would physically go places. But in this case, he didn't. Now, why, why didn't he actually go down to Capernaum? Why did he heal this boy from a distance? I think he wanted this man's faith to grow. He wanted the man to believe his word and not merely what he saw. In fact, it says the man believed the word of God. Look at verse 50b. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. The author of Hebrews, at the beginning of chapter 11, that great faith chapter, said, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right right here in the Gospel of John, John would later write in chapter 20, verse 29, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus wanted this man to move up the rung on the ladder. If you picture faith being like a ladder, he was standing on the bottom rung. The only thing he would believe is what he saw. I want to see a miracle. Once you come down to Capernaum, I want to see with my own eyes, you're going to heal my son. And Jesus said, go, your son lives. He wanted the man to move up a rung to the point that he would believe the word of Jesus and the word of Jesus alone. So the man's faith actually moves from a flicker to a flame. This little flicker of faith that he came with now bursts into a flame. Again, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. There is no record that this man ever hesitated, protested, asked for reassurance, asked a bunch of questions. Apparently, he just turned around and headed home. (laughs) Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He went on his way, and if you can picture this in your imagination, this dad is making that 20-mile trip over the Galilean hills from Cana back to Capernaum, and somewhere in between, he looks down the slope, and coming toward him are some familiar faces. Here come some of his employees, some of his servants, and they're not dragging their heels with their heads down, looking all melancholy. There's a certain joy in their step and smiles in their faces, and they're coming toward them. You know, they see the boss coming, and they pick up the pace, and they're smiling, and he sees them, and he smiles, and he hurries toward them, and, and they probably shout it out from some distance, Hey, boss, your son lives! And John doesn't tell us this, but I wouldn't be surprised if the dad said, shouted back, I know! Jesus told me so. He believed the word of Jesus. This man's faith was now on the bare word of God. In the 1800s, late 1800s, English pastor J.C. Ryle wrote this. 
Christ's word is as good as his presence. And the things of the gospel, believing is as good as seeing. In our culture, we say seeing is believing. When the gospel culture, we could say believing is seeing. <laughs> this dad believed the word of Jesus Christ. Didn't wait to see the miracle with his own eyes. He just believed the words of Jesus Christ. And he headed home. And now this flame of faith bursts into a full blaze. Look at verses 51 and 52. As he was going down, his servants met him told him that his son was recovering. He asked him the hour he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. He recognized that was the same hour Jesus said, your son lives. Verse 53, the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And when John adds that part of verse 53, I believe what he's saying is that this desperate dad, this court official, began to have faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And not only he, but so did his wife. And so did his household servants, his employees, and maybe his son too. That this whole family, this whole household, heard the word of Jesus Christ and put saving faith in him. These signs have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. There's a little epilogue there. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he would come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus had done miracles down south, but this is the second miracle up north in Cana. And looking for comparisons, I think, why did John include these as bookends? I think one reason may be that both miracles ended up with people believing the word of Jesus. It says that in the water to wine miracle, they believe the word of Jesus. And in this miracle, they believe the word of Jesus. So what are the takeaways? I mean, this is a fascinating story, but what are the takeaways? What are you going to take home with you on this? Well, let me just, again, commend this man in his flickering faith. If you say, I only have a flicker of faith, my faith is so small. When you're in crisis, it's okay to come to Jesus. I, I still think that's the right thing to do. And sometimes we're talking to coworkers or relatives or classmates or neighbors who aren't even believers yet, and they're going through a crisis. What do you do with that? When you're talking to some friend, acquaintance, coworker, relative, and they're talking about some crisis they're in, what do you do with that as a believer? Can I encourage you to take your friend, take your coworker, take your relative to Jesus? You know, so often in those situations we'll show some Christian compassion, and then maybe we'll say something like, I'll be praying for you. That's good. Can I encourage you to go another step? Whenever your friend, relative, whoever it is, comes to you with a crisis, instead of merely saying, I'll pray for you, why don't you say, why don't we go talk to Jesus about that right now? And you pray with your friend. You pray with your coworker, your classmate. You show them that Jesus is the right person to go to. You take them to Jesus. And they hear you praying to your Savior, asking for mercy. But you don't want to leave people with a mere flicker of faith. You want them to put saving faith in him. 
We want people to take Jesus at his word and not be dependent on seeing signs and wonders. We want faith to grow. So let me ask you one more question before we head out today, and that is this. How does faith grow? How does your faith grow? If you're here today and saying, my faith isn't that strong. I find myself struggling to trust Jesus. I Just in daily life, I have trouble trusting him. I question my own salvation at times. I question whether he loves me. I question whether he's going to help me. You know, you have all these anxieties and concerns and questions. And you say, my my faith is weak. But we've been there. We've all been there. How does faith grow? Well, why don't we start with prayer? Remember the disciples when they felt their weakness of faith? What did they say? They came to Jesus and prayed to him. Increase our faith. Why don't you begin there? Why don't you begin when you see the weakness of your faith? Go to the Lord and say, would you please increase my faith? We begin with prayer. Secondly, pray for faith. Secondly, feed your faith. Feed your faith. What do I mean by that? Think through this with me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so you want your faith to grow. You need to grow in your understanding of Christ, your appreciation of Christ, your adoration of Christ. And so you're praying, Lord, increase my faith. And simultaneously, you're feeding your faith with the word of God. You go to your Bible, praying to the Spirit, show me Christ. Show me the worthiness of Christ. Show me the compassion of Christ. Show me the power of Christ. Show me me Christ. And the good news is, my Christian friend, the Holy Spirit wants to answer that prayer request. He wants to honor the Son in your affections. He wants to honor the Son in your estimation. He wants to honor the Son in your life. And so when you go to your Bible praying, Holy Spirit, show me Christ. Don't be shocked if he answers that prayer even in greater ways than you ever anticipated. That as you feed your faith with the word of God, you find your astonishment of Christ growing. You find your affections for Christ growing. You find yourself falling in love with Jesus all over again And when he, he seems so precious to you, precious to you. And you find your faith in him growing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're You're feeding your faith with the Word of God. And then thirdly, I would just add, exercise your faith. Exercise your faith. How do you get stronger muscles physically? Exercise. How do you get stronger faith muscles? Exercise them. So the Lord is in His Word. He's calling you to something that you find challenging, you find difficult. Instead of sitting there saying, I can never do this, you say, Lord, help me do this. And you step out and and you obey the word of God. You obey the word of God. And as you obey the word of God, you're exercising your faith muscles. You pray. You pray, increase my faith. You pray for increased faith. You feed your faith. You exercise your faith. And wouldn't it be pleasant as you mature to realize, you know what? He's being so kind to me. My trust in the Lord, my confidence in Him, my faith in Him is so much greater than it was five years ago, so much greater than it was ten years ago that I think by His grace I may have grown ten years worth this last ten years. And you find as you age, your confidence in Him has been growing, that He wants the Son to be honored in your life. 